Hello and welcome to what is now Season 5 of Pebble in the Pond podcast. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year, ANZMHA hosts several leading mental health conferences which give us the opportunity to connect with incredible industry leaders, lived experience speakers, researchers, academics and frontline workers as they share fascinating stories and projects which are changing the face of mental health within our community. Listen in as we go one-on-one with these inspiring people and dive deep into their work. It is truly a privilege to bring you their stories. Our podcast episodes may contain content which could be triggering for some people. If you need support, please contact Lifeline on 131114 or visit the Get Help page on anzmh.asn.au. Join us for Pebble in the Pond each Tuesday and let's get into Season 5. Today's episode, we talk with Dr. Ben Hammer, one of the leading voices on the future of work. Ben is a doctor of public administration, which included time spent as a visiting scholar at Yale University and is an adjunct fellow for Swinburne University's Centre for the New Workforce. Ben leads the future of work market for PwC Australia and is on the board of the Australian HR Institute. We discuss how the pandemic is still creating waves in workplaces across Australia, how current trends and future predictions may affect workplaces, employees and employers. I thoroughly enjoyed this fascinating conversation and I hope you do too. Welcome, Ben. Ben, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast and sharing your story, your journey and some insights with our listeners. Appreciate it. No worries. Happy to be here. Mate, before we get into the work you're doing now, how does somebody get into this line of work and where did the curiosity or the passion start for you to get in the line of work? Yeah, so it's an interesting story, well, at least to, to me and my parents. So I always wanted to be a lawyer when I was at high school. And I still remember my teacher in year 12 said to me, oh, you're a bit of a people person. I'm not sure if law is the right thing for you. Have you ever thought about HR? And completely dismissed it, went and did law, absolutely hated it, and then ended up studying marketing, but somehow found my way working in HR over time. So uh, ended up proving her right, whether or not I like it or not. (laughs) And that was kind of where I was able to cultivate that curiosity in people and people at work and why they do the things they do and behave the way they do in an organization. And then that just kind of evolved over time into being at workforce strategy and then talking about the future of work. So my title is head of future of work, but that's not a title that existed even two or three years ago. Oh, so that's a, that title itself is only re- relatively new. Across any organization. Yeah, well, that's true. Uh, it, it's, it's something that I think we were talking about for some time pre-COVID, but it wasn't necessarily its own role, its own function. It wasn't something that we were developing whole programs of work around. Did you finish that law degree? No, I did all of like one semester and oh, pretty okay. early on okay. said, this is not for well, me. Well, man, that's pretty good. I mean, because really it could have been four years down the track and you're like, oh, um, it's not for me. So yeah. one semester, that's pretty good. Well, I'm also pretty thrifty, so I didn't want to waste okay. four years of hex <laughs> and then have to go into something else. Yeah, yeah, good point. So, so it's been something that's been, a, a, I guess, accidentally that you got into it. I mean, someone saw that in you early on and, and it took you a, a little bit longer to realize it. But tell me, what's been the most exciting aspect of being involved in the HR side of things early on? Yeah, I think for, for me, it was really getting to be part of this movement within HR where 
it's gone from wanting to have this seat at the table to having the seat at the table and now needing to prove its value. And so I'm also, for, for context, on the board of the Australian HR Institute. And so, yes. you know, really privileged to be able to see how the professions evolved over that period of time. And then the intersection of that with futures thinking, which again is this new discipline that we're starting to see, but something like COVID has really shown us the importance of thinking about how we plan for disruptions and looking five, 10 years into the future, how do we make sure our organisations, our workforce are future fit? And to me, that's the most interesting thing. I'm also a bit of a perfectionist, so it plays nicely and challenges me in that regard because you can never be right about the future. There's no facts about the future. And I have this thing I, I, I say, which I heard from someone else, which is, any useful statement about the future should at first seem ridiculous. So it's a creative space to be able to play in while still being in that passionate area around people and human resources, but thinking more about how do we prepare them for the future rather than getting too stuck in the here and now. Right. Okay. And and so is that something that, I mean, you progressively fell into as you went along and all of a sudden you found this whole other part, which is the future, on top of the HR aspect that you initially started off. Has it been a progression? And is that because of the way things happened during COVID that sped that up, do you think, and that realization that, oh, hang on, this is going to be a big space now. It's more more important. People are prioritizing this as a really good opportunity here for me to get into yeah, so for me, I'd always worked in workforce planning within the HR space, okay. and that's what I specialised in. So that was helping organisations think about, well, what's Structure. the kind of workforce we need in three years? What skills? Yep. What's the diversity of that group? Um, and what are the things we can do now to make sure that we have that ideal workforce in three years' time? And then that's just evolved to then be more about the future of work, which is saying, well, yeah, people are one component part of that, but then what is the impact of automation? What about the technology that we're embedding? What if, what does it mean particularly in the current environment around property? Yeah. You know, if people are going to be having these new ways of working, work at hybrid, working from home, what does that mean around our real estate footprint? And traditionally within organisations, those different stakeholders don't talk to one another. And so it's really useful to be able to, to, be able to play that role. And it's just been the evolution from workforce planning to then playing in a bit of a broader space. What did you see was the biggest impact of COVID as it relies or relates to the workforce? Oh, just one impact. <laughs> well, it, it, well, you couple. Yeah, give us a couple. I'll, 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 yeah, I'll, I'll just kind of go with what's coming to mind. So one of them that I think is really prevalent that's only kind of just starting to emerge is this idea of quiet quitting. So if we think about when the pandemic first hit, that's where we started to see the great resignation takeoff, where people were reevaluating the role of work in their lives, they were wanting to regain control after the pandemic. And so we saw a significant spike in turnover across organisations, which was a global phenomenon, but absolutely played out and is playing out in Australia. And the next evolution of that that we're now seeing is this notion of quiet quitting, as I said, which is where people aren't formally resigning from their role but they're just sick and tired of the hustle. And so they're, you know, feeling burnt out, they're feeling stressed. The pay rises and promotions haven't necessarily flowed through. Uh, and in this high inflation environment with cost of living pressures, people have just had enough. And so they're doing the bare minimum that they can do to get by. And in a market where you've got more job vacancies than job seekers, it means it's really hard to get talent. And so they're getting away with it because organisations aren't going to go about firing people when they can't even recruit them. So it's definitely something that, that's playing out and this whole idea of 
work being broken, people are reevaluating just how much they're willing to sacrifice for work. It's no longer about slogging it out in the job and, and getting rewarded with a paycheck at the end of the day. Uh, and so that's one of the biggest things for me. And then naturally the other one, which I think is pretty obvious that people are seeing is this idea around hybrid working. So people working across multiple places and spaces, it's no longer around five days a week in the office. And so we did some research at PwC where we found that at pre-pandemic, people were working about 47% or 47% of Australian workers were working five days a week in the office. Now that's 4%. And so oh. a really huge shift. And it's not just about where people work, but that has massive implications around where people live because if people don't need to come into the office as much, we've seen a lot of people move towards regional areas in Australia. It has implications around cities and, and economic productivity in cities and small businesses like cafes that rely on footfall traffic. So uh, that's been a pretty huge one that I think we'll also see sustained over the next few years as well. I mean, the indirect impact on those businesses surrounding those CBD areas where there was once a hustling, bustling, people everywhere to sort of, you know, a sprinkling of people coming in as needed. I mean, yeah, there, there is a, a bit of an effect that, that would roll onto those businesses, wouldn't there? Yeah, and, and from an economic perspective, it's not super drastic because what we're seeing is just a redistribution of that spending. Yeah. So rather than spending it at the local cafe in the building of where I work in the CBD, I'm spending it at my local that's suburban near my home. Cafe. And so suburban economies are going up. Seaboard businesses being impacted. Now, economically, it kind of balances out, but let's not forget that there are people who have families and lives who own those CBD cafes that are really being hit quite heavily by it. So we're seeing a bit of a decentralisation then of, and we're seeing little suburban pockets, hubs sort of coming up that are a bit more, have a bit more life to them, more economic activity than what it previously was. Yeah, and that's kind of where I see this thing that I'm terming the neighbourhood business district emerge and where we're seeing these satellite suburban areas where there's this what you call agglomeration of activity, so concentration of work-life play happening. So in Sydney where I live, you've got uh, Parramatta, Chatswood, uh, Liverpool and those kind of areas and precincts that are really starting to be established. What we will see though in the CBD in the sort of centre of, of capital cities is this resurgence where we may see sort of less floor space from major tenants, but you're going to see smaller organisations actually being able to afford to come in and take up part of a floor within a building. So to me, it's a really exciting opportunity because you're going to have more tenants, a more diverse group of tenants. It's not just going to be, you know, big corporates. It's going to be tech startups and others all co-locating. And that's a real opportunity for innovation. Would they even look to transition from commercial to residential? To Is that an option as well for the, some of those buildings? Yeah, I think that, that they're looking into that. But from what I've heard, I'm not an expert in that, but yeah. from what I've heard from the, the property uh, folk out there is that we're not going to see a huge amount of residential conversion within CBDs anyway. Okay. What about regional towns? I mean, they've been playing a, a bit of a role in this as well, haven't they? We've seen a bit of an exodus from some of those major cities to regional Australia and then the carry-on challenges that they're having with increased prices and property and lack of facilities to be able to take on the the movement in the population, is that we're seeing those regional hubs also come to life as well as the suburban hubs? Yeah, I think it's a combination of both rising cost of living within capital cities and house prices just being unaffordable for a lot of people with this decreased reliance on face-to-face and and therefore 
you know, if you need to come into the office one day a week, you're happy to do a three-hour commute as opposed to needing to live close to it. So there is that. And we did see over the last couple of years what they call the internal migration rate increase, which is people migrating from city to region. And so it's been playing out. I, I think that as we start to see this normalised return to office, return to workplace agenda, we might start to see that flatline a little bit. But what I think we will continue to see is at people increasingly living, not necessarily in regions, but more out of suburban areas. Because you've got a lot of people who maybe they're living in a one-bedroom apartment on a city fringe area, but they're working from home. They want a, a second bedroom or a third bedroom for a dedicated workspace. And so in order to do that, they're being priced out of that suburb. They need to just look a little bit further out. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting some of these trends that are coming out of it. What do you think is the biggest challenge with employers getting staff back to the workplace? I and mean, we're seeing that be a bit of an issue in some in some corporates. Are they just are they fighting are they fighting the inevitable that I mean they'll lose staff and then they'll want staff and they'll have to be flexible anyway? Or do you, where do you think that's going to play out with trying to get people back in? Yeah, I think that there are a lot of CEOs who are either really vocal about it or who. Uh, not vocal, but definitely having the conversations behind closed doors around just wanting to go back to the way things were, get people back into the office. And look, I, they say that it's because of, you know, collaboration, innovation, that's how you build relationships. My response to that is, well, that's how you built relationships. That's how you made a career of innovating and collaborating. But we're talking about generations coming into the workforce who have grown up playing video games with headsets on who have made some of their best friends with people they've never met in real life before. We're also on the precipice of the metaverse where by 2026 we'll all be spending at least one hour a day in the metaverse. And so virtual collaboration and virtual ways of working are on our doorstep. They're absolutely going to become the norm. And so I kind of put the challenge back onto some of those senior execs and say, why should everyone else change and revert to coming back into the office because that worked for you? Why don't you change? And why don't we actually use this as an opportunity to drive the transformation that a lot of these people have been talking about for some time in the past? It's just that it's less in their control now and it's more of a market-driven yeah. condition. And there is a generational shift, isn't there, really? I mean, compared to the generations before us, but then the, now the kids and the different generations coming through, whether it's millennials or or the other generations coming through after them. I mean, really, we've got to adapt, don't we, to otherwise we're not going to be able to attract those sorts of people to want to come work for us. Is that right? Yeah, and it's, it's, it's sort of a balance, right, because you've still got younger generations who really value coming into the workplace for learning and observational learning and access to leaders that they might not get because they have to, you know, organise and schedule a Zoom or virtual call with them. So younger workers still do want to come into the office. It's more that they don't want to be directed and mandated and they don't want the choice taken away from them. Yeah. And I think that's something that I'm seeing play out as well across all demographics and generations is, is that, that right? we've just spent the last couple of years in lockdowns with liberties taken away mm. from us where we were directed and told what we had to do and we were trusted to be able to work from home and now it's being directed to come back into the office. It's almost like we're no longer trusted. You didn't think that we were working productively and you're taking away that choice and control. And so that's where we're seeing the great resignation. We're seeing quiet quitting and we're seeing a drop in employee engagement scores. And do you think it's a matter of with the great resignation, do you think it's people that are rearranging the furniture on the deck? Is Are they just shifting within the same industry or we're seeing 
people that are completely doing different things altogether? Look, a bit of both, but but definitely seeing people doing completely different things. There's been a massive spike, particularly in the US, of people who are quitting to then start up their own business. And sometimes that's not even related to the work they were doing. It's, you know, me quitting my job at PwC to open up a bakery or something like right. that. So it's, Unrelated. you know. Yeah, and and so we're seeing that play out. People pursuing some of those passions and hobbies that they've always, you know, wanted to, but never really gone about doing. It comes back to this idea of reevaluating what work is in their life, and so we're definitely seeing that play out. We're seeing also students that are, you know, going through, have been going through uni, uni degrees, tertiary education, even schooling remotely over the last couple of years. Do you think that this just further supports the fact that you know these people have been able to study remotely now they now given the choice if they could do their the rest of their course in person or online they're all choosing online and now you're probably going to see that carry over into the workplace as well for their request to want to work offline remotely sorry online do you think that that's a habit that's formed out of COVID, or do you think that was going to happen anyway they were already gaming before this they're already on social media from when they were I don't know, seven, eight, nine to some of these people. I don't know how young they get on it these days. But do you think that's that's those sort of habits are sort of forming some of that behavioural patterns? Yeah, I, I think that it was already happening, but I would definitely say that COVID has accelerated it. And what the universities are seeing is that there are less people coming onto campus every day because they are reverting more towards that virtual learning. The, the risk for me when it comes to how we deliver education and that extends to when we're in the workplace is we can't just go about doing what we did face-to-face, chucking it online and saying that that's virtual. When we're thinking about virtual, whether it's learning or education, you need to plan it bespoke and deliberately for that environment. And so my concern is Mm -hmm. that people could actually go backwards in terms of their teamwork and collaboration and empathy and critical thinking, all those soft skills or human skills that we hear are so important in the future of work that we're so reliant on being developed through vocational, tertiary, secondary education, we could actually see a reversion in people going back because the education system hasn't actually adapted to completely revolutionise how we go about teaching them in a virtual environment. And similarly, when you enter the workplace, how we actually change our ways of working for that virtual environment as well because the amount of times you get invited to a Zoom or a Teams or a Google Meet virtual workshop. And all it is, is just a virtual meeting. You know, it astounds me. And so we haven't yet built that muscle and that's the key risk for for both educators and employers. It's an important distinction, isn't it? Because you're right. I know even with the conferences that we had, you know, you'd plan for them in person, then all of a sudden you couldn't because of COVID. You move the whole thing virtual and or, or for the people in Queensland that could come, they came in person and then just make the whole thing available online. But it's completely different. As an ex- If you sit there as an experience on the virtual sense and try and watch an in-person conference in the same format, it's, man, it's tough. Yeah. And so what works in person doesn't work in the virtual world. And so you do need to tailor it, don't you, and rethink how it all works. And the same, I assume, is what you're talking about with regards to education and, and even del- delivering business stuff as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Mate, really interesting. I mean, tell me... Tell me as well around, if we look at some of the things moving forward out of COVID that we've, so we're looking at flexibility for in the workplace, to have a chat around what that actually means other than choosing to go into work or not work from home. Like what else, what, because people keep saying flexibility is the most important thing, but what does that actually mean, do you think? 
Yeah, I think it comes back to this whole idea that employees want choice and control in what they do and how they do it at work. And so one of the, the things that we've seen and how that's played out is mandating coming back into the office. You see a lot of organisations who have gone about doing that and they've seen a massive spike in turnover. So we know that that's not the way to go about doing it. What I often say is, is in the current market where companies are really struggling to, to find people, go to an organisation that's mandating days in the office and that's the best place to find talent at the moment because they're walking out the door. I think that one of the key shifts in the last couple of years is that previously we used to say and, and you know, put in our job advertisements that we're a flexible workplace and we thought that that was a differentiator yeah. for how we would find people. Like right now, putting that in a job advertisement is like me putting on my CV that I'm proficient in Microsoft Word. Like I used to do that 10, 15 years ago. You're not going to do that now. And so there's this baseline expectation. It's a hygiene factor. You just have to be a flexible workplace. And that's an absolute minimum for an employee to consider you in the current environment. What you then want to do is, is think about, well, what are some things that I can do or offer as an employer that go above and beyond just a standard expectation of flexibility, which is that we embrace hybrid working and that we have work-life balance. That's your standard. So you've got some organisations that offer the opportunity for a compressed work week, which is a four-day work week. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can apply so that you are on a agreed way of working, that you do five days of work within four days. You've got some organisations that do summer Fridays. So in summer, 12 p.m., everyone knocks off. You've got some organisations that do flow time, which is Monday mornings before midday, absolutely no meetings across the organisation and whether or not you use that for doing deep thinking, non like no distractions for doing, you know, strategic work, whatever it might be, or whatever else you might want to prioritise. So it's thinking about how do you go and above and beyond when it comes to flexibility and acknowledging that it's a really different game that we're playing in at the moment. And but there's there's been no like there's no it's not like you can look back 10 years and th say, oh, what worked back then when this happened? Because we, it feels like this is new territory in some respects. As the employers, managers, or even staff, we're sort of still finding our way out of this. And you're, you're looking across at the other lane to see what the competitors are doing. Oh, okay, they're doing that. And then all of a sudden you're trying to frame yours to be or unique, different, at least the same as. I mean, it's quite interesting where we're at with this, isn't it? Yeah, and... Honestly, the amount of times that I have organizations and clients come to me and they say, what's the silver bullet? Like, yeah. what's, the, what's the leading organization doing around attracting and retaining talent at the moment? And to me, it's just a really silly question to be asking because in the current market where it is so hard to find talent, why do you want to be like someone else? You have to be able to differentiate in the current market. You need to stand out. You need to be known for something that competitors are not known for. And yes, that might mean that some people might be put off working for you, but you're going to appeal to a very specific cohort and that should be the cohort that you want, the kind of people with the skills and characteristics and attributes that are going to be able to help you deliver on your strategy. So if you think about what goes in an employee value proposition, you know, a lot of organisations try and just tick the box and do a little bit of everything. My advice is that you've just got to disproportionately over-invest. So know what your competitors are doing what they're really ramping up and what's part of their central proposition to the market. And then think about how you can ramp up something that's completely different that sets you apart. So someone else might be the market leader in pay. Well, you should be the market leader in flexibility, work-life balance and well-being or something like that.
so you do still need to look over the shoulder at the competition to see what's going on, but then really go internal and see well what's important to us and and our people, and then make that as your point of difference. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and also looking at non-traditional competitors as well. So, I mean, all organisations at the moment are saying that they're looking for tech talent and there's a shortage of tech talent. And so, you know, you've got to be looking at not just organisations that operate in your industry, but looking at critical roles and who else is trying to attract those people. And again, think a little bit more segmented. So it's not this one-size-fits-all proposition. You might have to have different things that appeal to different components or segments of your workforce. Mm. Have we seen a period like this before in the workplace where there's been such a shift towards employees and, and purpose-driven and it just it feels like it's no longer the employers dictating what's going on, but it's with the employees? Looking back over history, have we seen this before? You've definitely seen in the past times when the balance of power has sat with the employee rather than the employer. I think what makes this quite unique is that by all indications, you would think that we would be entering into a recession where, with a global pandemic and everything that comes with that, where unemployment would spike and, and, and everything that comes with that. And so it's a really interesting place that we're finding ourselves in where we have really low unemployment and where, you know, we saw organisations go about redundancies left right and center in 2020 and then six months later you know you can't recruit fast enough and so that's been quite unique I think social media has really played a big part and the transparency at the moment as well you've got Instagram pages and TikTok accounts that are profiling and talking about some of these trends and making them more known and acknowledged and you know the moment an Australian organization for example does something a particular policy or whatever it might be, you've got multiple Instagram accounts that are then posting about it, copying the email, sharing it, poking fun of it. And so you really need to be quite careful and, and deliberate now as an employer and that's playing into this whole notion of employees sitting with this balance of power. Do you, th do you think it's also careful for the employer because, I mean, it's hard to undo some of this stuff, isn't it? When you bring something in, do you think then people – Think, oh, okay, we try the four-day work week and then all of a sudden you want to go back to five. I think it's like getting people working from home and then trying to get them back in the office. It's hard to go back. So I guess you want to see some research or some sort of stats or data that says, yes, this is going to be a really good outcome for both the business and the employees. Yeah, but to me, so that's what a lot of CEOs are saying. And I just, it, it does frustrate me though because it's like saying we're waiting for a period where we're not going to be faced with a level of disruption. And quite frankly, we're in an environment now where we're currently seeing the fastest change we'll experience in the rest of our lives. And it's also the slowest it will be for the rest of our lives. So disruption is the norm. It's not going away. And so trying to have these definitive answers, trying to have, you know, that silver bullet that we're going to say hand on heart with confidence is going to work, you're never going to find that environment and be in that environment to do that. So to me, it's about having more of a risk appetite. It's not about necessarily making these wholesale changes, but it's more about pilots and experimenting. Look at one division or one function or one part of your organisation or set the expectation that says, we're going to do summer Fridays. And if we find that it works, maybe it's something that we implement year round. Just try things and see what works and what doesn't work. And that's the only way we're going to be able to navigate through this. Because again, 
if anyone tells you that they know the answers about the future of work and what's going to work for your organization, they're just lying. Now, that's a good point. As you mentioned, disruption, it's the slowest, but yet it's going to, you know, it's going to speed up. What are some of the implications on this and, and how do you prepare for this in the workplace? Because is this just something that we need to be agile, we need to be flexible, we need to continue to remain open moving forward to, to, to just adapt as things come up? And employees or employers, for this to continue to happen, there's that uncertainty, there's an unknown that can give people quite a bit of anxiety around, man, if I don't get this right, you know, where are we going to be? It's, and you used to do 10-year, five-year planning. Right now you're like, let's just try and be relevant still next year, you know. I mean, how do you see all this playing out with this disruption? I think that's the risk is to to say there is so much uncertainty and complexity now, so let's focus on the short term. I think when COVID first hit, that made sense because that's crisis management. Yep. But what we need to be doing is – thinking about that five and 10 year planning, and that's more important than ever. And COVID has shown us why we need to plan for disruption because when COVID happened, we had no idea what to do. So we need to be thinking long-term, but we need to make sure that we're not so fixed in our views that we can't respond and adapt and change, as you said. So it's about planning for scenarios. It's about exploring multiple futures. So when we're talking about the future of work, it's the futures of work. And thinking about then how we build that into our organisational DNA, that agility, but then how we also build that in our workforce as well. So that comes down to things like developing a learning culture of self-directed, adaptive and agile learning and thinking about how we support our people to be able to learn, unlearn and relearn at pace because that learning agility is one of the most important skills I think that will set people apart in the future of work. That makes sense. And also looking at their processes, right? Because what served you before, all of a sudden, some things you're doing, you might just be doing for the sake of it. And it's not until you put everything under the lens and say, well, why do we do things the way we used to do things? And and with technology, automation, AI, uh, I mean, even knowing how to ad- adapt or sorry, adopt all that stuff in the work process flow to create better outcomes. I mean, it's there's a fair bit there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think you're then going to see these big mega trends then come over the top of that as well and shake things up even further. So if you think about the work that you do in terms of putting on conferences and events, you're going to see in five years' time a whole group of people, 25, 30 and younger, who just say, I'm not willing to travel to that event because of the carbon emissions and the the ESG implications. And so that's going to then push the events industry more into the metaverse and virtual events. And, And so thinking about how are some of these disruptors that are seemingly insignificant as far as work are concerned are actually going to permeate into our working lives and are going to disrupt industries and then therefore ways of working in the people that work for us. Because mm. you're looking at it, you go, the business we're in but also the business we're going to be in in the future and that's the unknown that you want to try and continue to work on and keep an eye on because if you don't, you may be irrelevant. Yeah, uh, and so you want to stay relevant moving forward. But you, you've spoken a bit about this metaverse. Can you just give us a bit of insight into what on earth this is? I mean, I picture someone just putting on the goggles and and preferring to live a life in the virtual world than in the reality. I mean, is that is that what you're talking about there? And and having your house in the in you know in the online or whatever it is, and friends online, but yet you're not really living that life. Is that what it is? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of an extension of if you, you know, 
younger listeners have seen or played games like Second Life where you're essentially in a virtual world and you have an avatar that jacks into it. And so you're walking around and seeing and hearing and experiencing the people around you who are also sort of beaming into it as well. At the moment, you're wearing goggles soon. That will translate into smart glasses. And it's everything from living, working, shopping, playing in the metaverse. And so one of the things that will be around sooner rather than later is doing meetings in the metaverse. So you won't be necessarily needing to all dial into a a virtual call, nor will you see people physically travelling in, but you'll see people who are able to actually just, their avatar is in, they speak when they speak, the facial expressions mimic their facial expressions, they can write on a whiteboard and then you can copy the notes to take away with you. That's not necessarily how it is now, but that's what we'll see very quickly transpire over the next couple of years. I mean, do you think that's sad that we don't have that human interaction anymore or or in reality of what we know today? I mean, do you think that that's sort of, I mean, it's obviously inevitable with where we're heading with these things, but do you think we're going to go too far in the virtual world? It's a hard one. I mean, I think what we need to remember is we're coming at it from the perspective of people who grew up in a very different world and for people who are now entering the workforce or will soon be entering the workforce for them, this is very normal and for them, this is what they know to, to be normal. And so to, to one hand, I go, well, you know, some people might actually prefer the virtual world than the real world and that can be a little bit concerning, but that's concerning from me and my perspective. Is it concerning yeah. as far as they're concerned? Maybe not. Well, it's, I mean, really interesting, isn't it, the way that this, this could go and you just sort of think, okay, what are the other opportunities that may evolve as a result of this obviously you know virtual shops and and being able to look at stuff and i assume they put it on in the virtual world as well is that how it works or yeah and and it's already a massive industry so you've already got sporting sporting events and and whatnot in the metaverse taking off someone has paid over four million dollars for a house in the metaverse so that's a non-existent virtual house that someone's paid for you've got designers and clothing brands like gucci who are selling bags in the metaverse, handbags that retail for more than a physical Gucci bag actually sells for. So there's a massive market in it. You're seeing a lot of organizations and startups who we've never heard of actually create themselves and invent themselves as a metaverse brand. So maybe a clothing brand and you pay $30 for a virtual top that your avatar wears in the metaverse. And so there are new industries, there'll be new jobs that get created. There is a lot of opportunity that comes with it. But at the moment, it's still one of those things where there are so many unknowns that we're still thinking that it's more scary than something that we're getting yeah. excited about. Hey, that's insane. Like I was just trying to get my head around buying something virtually to carry around in a virtual world that you'll never tangibly touch in the real world. But I mean, hey, like you said, this is already well down the road. Yeah, it's an interesting psychological and sociological thing that's going on, right? Because if you think about it, Some people buy a particular car and spend a lot of money on a particular car Mm. because of the status and how it makes them look, not necessarily because of the utility of a car getting you from A to B. And so it's the same when you go in the metaverse. You have the opportunity to create an identity and even manipulate the way that you look, the color of your hair, the clothes that you wear to be whatever you want it to be. And for some people, that's really exciting and liberating. And it's, to me, the same kind of concept of people who are willing to pay X amount of money to look a certain way, 
that they're influencing the perception or how people perceive them in a virtual world rather than a physical world. It's the same thing. It's just virtual versus physical. Yeah, so you can make up your name. You can, can you even work? Yeah. You can work in the metaverse? Well, I mean, the, in the future, I mean, you'll have some organizations just like organizations at the moment where you've got those who are purely virtual and online who don't actually have a physical office. You'll have some organizations that are purely based in the metaverse. A lot of organizations that exist today will eventually move some of their work into the metaverse, even if it is just having team meetings. But for others, there okay. will be entirely metaverse-based workplaces. Yeah, so, so so it's not like in a virtual workplace where you might go work at the bakery down the street in the metaverse and get paid to be there in the metaverse. Not like, I think in the future you will say that, yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Mate, that's amazing. Yeah. That is amazing. That's blowing my mind. Fairly well behind this stuff, as you can tell. But, I mean, this is its really interesting, isn't it? I just find it fascinating. And, look, what you were just talking about isn't something that's going to happen in the next no. couple of years, right? So. Uh, someone was saying that where we are now with the metaverse is where we were with the internet about 25 to 30 years ago, where you think about really clunky dial-up, really slow connection speeds. Google wasn't really a thing. And people didn't really think that the internet would fundamentally change our lives and Mm. just look how much it is embedded in our day-to-day lives now. That's essentially where the metaverse is going. So it is a bit gimmicky now. It is really clunky but it is going to transition into something that's pretty transformational. It's like you're telling me you'll pay for water one day and you're sitting there going, there's no way you pay for water. And yeah. but, but it's ingrained in the in the society, isn't it? Now exactly. you're like, mate, there's, there's a difference between the different waters you can get. So, mate, this is super interesting. And what an opportunity as well, I guess, for... I guess we're going to see a rise then in designers for these stuff that are just in the virtual world and all these graphics and stuff as well. Is that right? Yeah, and and as I said, it's already happening. People are designing these handbags. Architects are designing these houses in the virtual world. So that's just only going to happen more and more. And is this in one, is it a game that you'd be go into a part of or is this the metaverse like the internet where everybody's in the one area or is there different, do you subscribe to a different platform in the metaverse? So at the moment, there are different platforms that you, okay. you go into. How that plays out into the future who knows, and how it will evolve. I think you'll continue to see so Microsoft has one, Meta as in Facebook has one, and and others will crop up and emerge as well. Wow. And do you see if, I mean, when you look virtually, because one of the things you don't want to happen is where, you know, social skills, interaction skills is going to really struggle because people are just at home, but I guess they're going to still have the interactions just in a virtual world. Yeah, still so learn to it, talk to people, still learn to do all that. Exactly. And not only that, but it will become more complex. So you'll still yeah. need to show empathy, but you'll need to show empathy through an avatar rather than human, real-life, face-to-face interactions. And so it's just we need to think of it more as an evolution. Yeah. Like we need, you know, if you think back to work a couple of hundred years ago, people were working in factories before that, working in fields farming, and it was yeah. agriculture. Now think about you know influencers. Who would have thought that that was a legitimate job you know back then? And so. It's just the evolution of, of work and skills and how things progress. And a lot of the things that we do now will still be doing, but it will just be done in a very different way and expressed very differently through more virtual sort of means. Well, I could be off on the wrong tangent here, but tell me what happens if I get arrested in the virtual world? Does that, do they put me in jail and I can just log on with a different thing or do, do I really, how does that work? If you, what if I harm somebody in the virtual world? Yeah, I have no idea. I don't know. I, I, and 
as far as sort of committing crimes in the metaverse goes and stealing from the virtual bakery, I don't know. <laughs> but I think that one thing that we need to start thinking about now and that's a really real risk is what about bullying and yeah. harassment in the metaverse and inappropriate behaviour? And yeah. from a workplace perspective, what happens if you're in a virtual meeting and and something plays out and there are new types of virtual harassment that that come about yeah. through avatar behaviour and what happens if the AI or what happens if the technology malfunctions and, and it results in harm to someone. So those are things that we need to be thinking about and conversations yeah. we need to be having now. Because there's risk with everything, isn't there? And so I guess just having a look at those and seeing what they are, I no doubt they'll have a solution for all that, but you just think, I mean, that's scary, but it's also, I guess, something that's coming and, and you just got to embrace it, don't you, and figure out how you stay relevant. And do you think it'll coexist or do you think we'll all go metaverse at some point? No, it'll definitely coexist. I okay. think, you know, the idea of being in a purely virtual world, I don't think that's going to happen in my lifetime. Yeah, okay. Mate, this has been really interesting. We've gone over time, but I've really enjoyed it. Ben, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, so I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. So okay. you can just Google Dr. Ben Hamer and I should come up and, and post quite regularly. So if you're into different workplace trends, phenomenons, labor market stuff, that's that's where to go. I've got a website, www.benhamer.space. Perfect. Mate, I really appreciate your time. It's been really inter interesting having a chat to you around this stuff. And you've certainly opened my eyes up to a, a few things I didn't know prior, but even just getting all your thoughts on the flexibility with workplaces and where we're going with all that stuff, really interesting. I appreciate your time and thanks for joining me. No worries. I'll catch you in the metaverse. <laughs>